1: to get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
2: Humour is as much part of who we are as uh, as breathing and walking and seeing and being in the joke. It's it's the fizz in our lives.
3: Welcome to the Humorology Podcast with me, Paul Barros, and my glittering lineup of guests from the worlds of business, sport, and entertainment, who are going to share their wisdom and their use of humor with you. Humorology is the study of how humor can dramatically improve your business success and your life. Humorology puts the fun into business fundamentals, increases the value of your laughing stock, and puts a punchline back into your bottom line. Please remember to like, subscribe and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. My guest on this edition of the Humorology podcast is a multi-award winning actor who is also the portrait of a popular history presenter. His legendary career spans from the theatre to the silver screen and everything in between. He was a successful child actor who has never stopped working, from playing the fool in King Lear to the title role in the hypochondriac. Along the way, he wrote and starred in the seminal kids' comedy Maid Marion and Her Merry Men, for which he won a BAFTA. He spent decades as the host of the historic Channel 4 behemoth Time Team, where he solidified himself as an impeccable icon who imparted immersive information to the masses. As a member of the Labour Party, he has contributed to a variety of quality campaigns aimed at the progression of human and labour rights. His political and presenting performances propelled him to prominence when he was knighted by the Queen in 2013. From his legendary charity work to his beloved role as Baldrick in Blackadder, he has quickly become the nation's premier presenter of popular history and political prowess. Sir so, Tony Robinson, welcome to the Humorology Podcast.
2: Thank you. Gosh, I, I, I've really been going a long time, haven't I? You just kept going and going, and, and all these various years rolled past me like those when those calendars used to flip by in a movie, you know?
3: Yeah. Well, I mean, there was so much to get in and I thought of cutting things out and I thought, no, the the public need to know all the things you've done, Tony, just remarkable career. But I want to go back. Um, I mentioned you were a child actor and we'll come back to that. Uh, But the Jesuits say, give me a child of seven and I will give you the man. Was the young Tony Robinson funny?
2: I think probably the young Tony Robinson was far funnier than I am now. I was thinking about this earlier actually because i you sent me some notes, and one of the notes was, "What is your favorite joke?" and I was thinking, people by and large don't tell jokes now in the same way that they used to It's like People at family gatherings tend not to go over to the piano and start playing and then everyone joins in. And like, cultures do change. And that idea of a, a joke as something that we trade among ourselves, which used to be so important to me when I was a kid. It's like, you, it had to be the best joke and you 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 had to say it the best. And your mum and dad would tell you jokes that they probably learned about 40 or 50 years ago. It's sort of completely disappeared. But yes, I think in those days, a, I told lots of jokes, and B, I wanted to be funny. It seems, I don't know, it's a bit like impressing people, I think, really.
3: So was humour valued in your family then?
2: Yeah, very much so, yeah. I think probably because both my parents, and this will come as a shock to you, both my parents w- w- were little. And <laughs> I think right. when you're little, you uh, you need some kind of safety jacket, somewhat, something to get you through. And comedy is a, a, a wonderful way of doing that. W- with Rowan, it was his, his big ears and his stutter. With me, it was my height. And uh, I gave you a security, I think.
3: Yeah, that's very interesting because, but also your your parents were, in show business on one level or another. I mean, I think your father played in a dance band for the Canadian forces, didn't he? And your mum loved amateur dramatics. Do you yeah, think it was something genetic?
2: It wasn't so much that they were in showbiz, which makes it sound like, you know, they were in a Judy Garland movie, which I was later on, interesting. Anyway, okay. um, they, um, uh, my dad, worked for what was then called the LCC that became the GLC you know the the organization that ran London he was a clerk and then worked his way up my mum was an audio typist but as you say she loved amateur dramatics and she picked that up during the war um and my dad uh, when he was in the RAF in, in the war, the, the load of Canadian forces in East Scotland, where he was, and they needed a, a pianist in their dance band. And he said, I'll do that. He could just about find his way through, around a piano, but he wasn't in any sense a pianist. And he learnt on the job. He learnt going round to all those village halls and community centres night after night and had a fantastic war as a pianist and he could have gone back to Canada and been a professional musician but he decided not to because my mum and dad were both working class hackney kids and my dad because he'd been reasonably successful in his career was able had been able to buy a semi-detached house in South Woodford in 1938 and that was their dream and that had been their dream before the war and that's what they wanted to go back to so in a way I think i uh, what I do and what I am is an echo of all those yearnings that they had, but which were never fulfilled.
3: Well, that, well, they must have been so proud because I, I think at 14, you were in the uh, stage production of Oliver with, I mean, some absolute legends. And it wasn't, Ron Moody was in it, Georgia Brown. Was it Phil Collins there at the same time as no, you?
2: No, no Phil, uh, Phil wasn't. But my understudy was Steve Marriott who went on to be the lead singer on wow. The Small places. So, uh, And it's funny, a lot of those boys were musicians uh, and went on to become musicians as it were, rather than going down the other routes as, as actors. I was actually in the original cast of Oliver. So I was there wow. on the on the first night. Um, and I think we had something like 27 curtain calls. But like as a kid, how do you know that's a big deal? You've never done that before. Maybe that's what happens to, to, to everybody. So yeah, yeah. I was,
3: uh, I can't know what your question was, but I was in the original cast. <laughs> well, no, actually I wanted to let them, it was about their pride of, of oh, yeah. fulfilling That's right. their, their, their dreams.
2: I often ask myself about that. Objectively, it is quite clear to me that if I say they pushed me, that sounds as though they, they were getting, getting some resistance. But they certainly went on this road with me to being a child actor, which was odd, really, because I was like in the A-stream at my local grammar school. um, And my teachers were intent on me having an academic career, which I didn't want in the slightest. I was so lazy. Anybody listening to this will think, "We, well, yeah, I was lazy too. No, you weren't lazy like I was lazy because I was supposed to be in shows an awful lot of the time. Nobody knew whether I was supposed to be at school or not. I used to bunk off for weeks at a time. And I, I say I used to bunk off, I used to bunk off. And then I would go in at lunch and have lunch and, and a game of football uh, and then I would leave again. <laughs>
3: It was at school, wasn't it? Where where you first went on stage. And I heard that, that when you got your first laugh from an audience in the school play, uh, you described it as wine to your soul. Um, Billy Crystal um, said about Robin Williams is uh, he needed those extra little hugs that you can only get from a stranger. Was that isn't that a lovely phrase? As we get older, we have to realise what we are, don't we? Because uh, and we do need that. That that and the laugh does that. I think one of the problems for
2: young performers—it's probably true of performers generally—is that you have this kind of Uber life, which is on the stage, waiting for the show that night. I was uh, had a chat with with Matt Lucas the other day, and we both agreed that. If somebody says to you, will you be in a show? It's all right. You'll only be on for about 10 minutes. So you'll be in and out, you know, it would just be great fun. The fact is when you're in a show, it dominates the whole of your day from the moment you wake up to the moment that you go to bed. You are in some way in that world. And I think it's what it means for a young child is that you don't develop another world. So, Show business, it is your world. It's more than just your blanket, it's your blanket, your duvet, your bed, your bedroom, it's everything. And I think that's why performers tend to get so terrified when they're out of work, because it's like, there's no me for me to be if I'm not working. I think that's the, that's the great fear,
3: great terror. So, I mean, you live to work essentially, do you? Or, or they, they become the same thing?
2: I think as I've got older, I've I've been able to develop some objectivity about it. I think the first time you lose one of your kids in in a department store.
3: (laughs) Oh, don't.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, suddenly actually being in a show has far less importance than it did have. The first time a friend of yours or a relative of yours gets cancer. First time, you know, you see that you know that you only have that limited amount of time with them. Those kinds of things, I think, I think uh, hopefully for most of us, we're able to, 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 to shift that performance part of us up a little bit, a little bit, a little bit more. But lockdown was actually great for me. I had always been so consumed by my work. Not necessarily comedy, it didn't have to be comedy work after a time. It could be writing, it could be directing, it could be anything. Um, Suddenly, because I was, wasn't really doing that for months at a time, I had to develop my own resources again. And I think a really charming thing happened to me. We've got... I we haven't got a garden, but we've got a very, very big terrace at the back of our apartment. And I got uh, um, loads of tubs in and I decided I would make it beautiful. I'd never had time. I'd never, never really taken ownership of my backyard, as it were. and. So much of my focus during lockdown was on flowers and plants. And my wife said to me, how do you know what you're doing? Um, You just seem to be able to do it. And I I said, I thought everybody... And then then I thought, no, it's because when I was about nine or ten, my dad loved his garden and I would just follow around behind him all the time. He gave me a little patch of garden. And then after about a couple of years, that would have been the least cool thing to do ever. (laughs) So I I, I probably broke my dad's heart and just kind of turned my back on it. and had no interest in in plants at all. Isn't it lovely that that was still buried in it? You said earlier it was comedy in my DNA. Um, Monty Don was in my DNA, or a Monty Don was in my DNA too. And I didn't
3: realise until I was in my seventies. Oh, well that's fantastic, isn't it? When something comes back at that level. So Tony, what makes you laugh? Guilt, embarrassment,
2: nervousness, uh, feeling lesser than other people in the room. If you watch my documentaries, you'll see I laugh an awful lot they have to cut out an awful lot of my laughter and that laughter is about passivity it's about pacifying the room so that i can get what i want out of the room and on telly you'll see an awful lot i think on chat shows in particular this this laughter which isn't like laughter at the end of a punchline laughter at the end of a rude joke it's <laughs> it's just the, it's, it's the noise uh, it's like monkeys, isn't it? It's like yeah. monkeys gibbering in a cage. I think most laughter is
3: monkeys gibbering in a cage. I would go as far as to say that. So you use it as a, a tool to sort of pacify the room or to get rid of your stress? or How do you use it?
2: Uh, I think everybody does. I don't think it's, it's something uh, that just I do. I. Uh, Wherever I go, I can hear it all the time from people. When people come up to you, well, maybe they're just laughing at me. (laughs) But when they're not, um, I think that's what most laughter is. And I think that what comics and comedians are able to do is to corral all that into little
3: bite-sized chunks, which are pleasurable because they're controlled. Well, I I think that's so true. And the whole humorology Project is is about uh, being able to do that. But what you do is, I, I think you have a superpower, essentially, because as a psychologist, you get to change people's state. And to be able to change somebody's state is a superpower and you can move them to a new place now somebody could be in the depth of depression but it's hard to be depressed when you're laughing and you come in and you change people and your your life or in essence has been about changing people's states in a good way
2: you're absolutely right it's what we call working an audience isn't it when you go on stage hopefully what will happen is there'll be a round of applause unless you're in the middle of (laughs) a check off in which case it's really irritating to the other actors and that has actually happened to me at the Bristol Old Vic. Um, uh, But normally you go on stage you'll get some sense of uh, a hello back from the audience and you know that you now have some time to take them with you on whatever journey it is that you want to to take them on and it's like a it's like the ceiling of a contract between you and the audience but it's a contract which can be torn up by them at any time so you've got to kind of keep keep working at it keep checking the clauses as it were sorry i'm getting bored with this metaphor but you know what i
3: mean yeah no no it's a great metaphor but it's i mean it is that humor is the ultimate bonding tool isn't it because uh, you've traveled around the world on all these wonderful documentaries and The art of doing that, I would have thought, is by connecting with people, getting rapport. How do you get rapport with people from different cultures? I mean, your face is is your fortune in that sense of, of lighting up other people's lives without necessarily being able to speak their language.
2: I can, I can only tell you what I do and I don't know whether it works for other people and I don't know if it's how other people do it. But I know that for me, it's about letting go, being open, taking risks, um, not worrying about whether you'll offend somebody, actually, because if you've got your antennae up, you'll know as soon as you start to offend them and you can pull back. If you have offended them too much, then you can apologise. And um, uh, uh, so just just be who you are, recognize what the interplay is between you and uh, uh, the other person, honor it, play with it, tease it, go further. And you know, 99, 99 times out of 100, that does work.
3: But what you've just described, I think the great uh, comics, great comic actors, great uh, actors do, and which something our listeners can take away is listen, is really listen. And I, when I talk about listening, you know what I mean. You, you look at people's faces and you listen off the top as we call it in psychology. So you get to the essence of them. Are they, I mean, the simple thing is are the eyebrows going up, i.e. tell me more?
2: Yeah, I'm, I, I would take it one step further and say, as a discipline, you ought to listen actively if that doesn't sound too poncy, you no, know? Because right. we all think we're listening. All, those, all, that, all the time we're going, yeah, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. We think we're listening, we're making those noises. We must be listening. We're not listening. You know, it's, a, it's, a, it's like being in the moment, isn't it? Most of us are in the, in the moment about four times a day, three of them when you're having a poo. It's the same with listening. It's very, very easy to think, what, what is it that I'm going to say next? rather than be with the person on their route. Because actually, it takes you a millisecond in reality to think of what you're going to say next. It's just like an emotion, what you're going to say next. In real life, you don't rehearse the words. You don't fluff when you're having a conversation. You don't have to get halfway through and say, sorry, can we go again on that? (laughs) Um, So you can actually stay with the person for as long as you want. Then maybe just as you hear their energy dropping, maybe that's the time to to come in with your next observation or your next question, but until then, just be with
3: them, I think. I think all the great performers are listening for feedback, whether that's from the other performers. I mean, all the uh, shows you've done, you can tell that you are trusting and listening which I know you went to Central and studied, those trust exercises are very important to life and just people in normal life. I always say when when people stand up to make a speech, just do it and give your attention outward because if you and I go to the pub and we meet, we're not going to take notes, are we? About and go, did you see the game Saturday, Tony? You know?
2: That's a very funny idea. Yeah. <laughs> someone, someone being unsure about how to talk something they haven't met before and getting out the notes, and the first one is,
3: did you watch the game on Saturday? <laughs> well, but that's the absurdness. And when people are giving speeches or uh, being interviewed uh, on the radio or television, you find that they're, they're, they're so much uh, in what we call the conscious brain. Because, you know, the conscious brain can only hold between five and nine pieces of information and the unconscious can hold millions of pieces of information. When we're having a chat, we're in the unconscious. You're saying something, I'm listening, we're acting and back. And it's just like a game of tennis at that point. Last week,
2: I did my first live gig for ages because of COVID. And it was a corporate and it was um, uh, it was a guy who had a big internet type firm, and he hadn't seen uh, his juniors. Many of them he hadn't seen ever. Um, uh, And so he wanted to get them all together. And what he decided to do was to he just bought a new big fancy house, lovely house up in Oxfordshire somewhere, a huge garden. And he decided to get them all to dig his garden. And he would get me to come in as a surprise, as the person who used to present time scene at the end, and judge all the trenches. I got, when I got there, he was terribly relaxed about it, but he said, it's all gone completely tits up. He said, they they couldn't do the digging. When they tried to do the digging, they didn't find anything. At lunchtime, I foolishly offered them alcohol. (laughs) They blundered around all afternoon, and we haven't got anything for you to judge. In fact, we haven't even got any archaeological finds for you to talk about. And... Well, there were two things. First of all, and it was very interesting that he was the CEO. First of all, I was able to de- deal with that because my client was so relaxed. The whole reason I'd gone there, and he was paying me a decent wage, the whole reason that I was getting that money had completely foundered. He didn't know why. You know, how would he know anything about my experience in the past? But it was like he just trusted me to sort it out. And so, I did and I just used everything that I had done for the last 60 years you know all that vocabulary performing vocabulary emotional vocabulary words vocabulary just came out and I was bouncing off all the what all the other people were saying which is what you were saying before about listening and I was storming and the more that I did it the more adrenaline Nice adrenaline was uh, produced rather than fear adre- adrenaline. And like any junkie, I wanted more of it. So I was actually prepared to do more, to take more risks. Uh, and it just, and when I got back home afterwards, my wife said, I haven't seen you this excited for ages. And I said, it was just, because I know, even though those people want to done it, I, I know I did a really good job. And part of doing a really good job for me is people don't see the scaffolding.
3: Yeah, and the experience and everything. But also very interesting is that he was calm, you were calm, and suddenly, and that is experience and that is knowledge. Uh, in psychology, we say if you want anybody to go into any state, you have to go into that state first. So if you're there and the CEO's going, uh, oh my God, what's going on? I don't think you're going to go into that state. The audience is going to go to that state. It's all going to go to pot. Tell me a true funny story about something that's happened to you, Tony.
2: What immediately leaps to mind is I used to do a very rude show on Channel 4 called Who Does Wins? And uh, we took it on tour doing live shows. And that included what was known as the Emperor's New Clothes sketch. It started with Jimmy Mulville and Rory McGrath on stage as two tailors. And there was the curtain to the dressing room in the middle of the stage. And they were saying, they were shouting into this cubicle, going, Oh, it's a very nice suit. And it really won't cost very much um, at all. And you look fantastic in it. And then I opened the uh, curtains and I was naked. And they would tell really pretty rubbish jokes like oh there's a split up the back sir or, or look, at that <laughs> <thing>. <laughs> look at that dangly bit I'll snip it off um, and uh, I, can't, I can't even remember how, that, how the sketch ended I think that's I, I, I think we didn't know how to end it so I, somebody interrupted the sketch anyway we put we took it on tour and the great thing I think for Comedian, is. When you're nude, it, it's like, it's a funny suit. Whatever you look like, it's a funny suit. And any joke, like, oh, there's a split up the back, becomes ten times funnier than any, anything normally would. And again, it's that thing about the more relaxed you are, or appear to be, being in the nude, even if you have given yourself a polish for about 20 seconds before you went on stage. You're you're confident in, in, in that. Even if the material isn't great, there's something about being in the nude. Um, so we... We did it on stage and at the end at the end of it I wandered off stage ran round the interior corridor to the back of the theatre then came in at the back of the theatre and started wandering through the audience looking for my clothes so I was actually squeezing past everybody in their rows and going whoa and looking under their seats thus sticking my bottom in their faces um Pretty hilarious stuff. And all that worked really well until we went, we were playing in a cinema in Lincoln. And I went off stage and there was no intervening corridor between the stage and the back of the theatre, although I didn't realise that. And I pushed the fire doors, opened them, they swung shut again. And there was I in the car park, totally (laughs) naked. I went to the, I, I went to the next door it was also a fire door, and the next, and the next, and the next. And, and eventually, uh, I got round to uh, to the front of the theatre, so I'm now in the main road. And I walked to the theatre, I pushed open the door, and there were two programmes, so there's little girls, you know, young women, 16, 15, 16, and they looked up at me, and I said, it's all right, I'm in the show.
3: Oh my word. Now that is.
2: It's funny, isn't it? Because telling that, I'm still thinking about it, it's funny. But actually, it is all about terror and insecurity, which goes back to what I was saying earlier.
3: What makes you laugh? Yes.
2: What (laughs) makes you laugh? Someone just about to be arrested for obscenity in the
3: street. The other two words you used earlier on were guilt and embarrassment makes you laugh as well. So that's the perfect story. It encompasses all those things. Oh, it's it's wonderful. You starred in one of the greatest comedies of all time. I've always wondered, did you actually know any of the other actors and performers before you started? No. no, I had
2: always loved what I thought of as Oxbridge comedy. The first one I remember was in the early 60s. It was called That Was The Week That Was. It had David mm-hmm. Frost in it and then Sharon, Millicent Martin was in it, um, Roy Kinnear was in it. Uh, and uh, I just thought it was wonderful. I, I lo- It was dazzling and it was smart. And up until then, however funny comedy had been to me. There was a bit of me that was slightly irritated by it because it seemed so trivial. If that, if that's a snobbish thing to say, that's fair enough. I'm a bit of a comic snob, um, but I loved that. I loved that comedy. And um, but I left school at 16 because I was going to be an actor, and so there was no, you know, the only way to get into that kind of comedy with Monty Python and uh, Forty Towers, not the Nine O'Clock News, was if you had been in footlights or or something similar, uh, which I was never going to be able to do. And then purely out of the blue, and it was just because uh, they couldn't cast the part, I got the script on the Thursday, and it was for a a pilot programme starting the following Monday for Rowan Atkinson's new series. So it was obviously desperation on their part. Later, I was the eighth choice. Everybody had turned it down because it was a rubbish part. It's only about, about eight lines, and none of them were funny. Uh, But from the moment I went into rehearsals with them, it was like I was with my my soul brothers. It was such... I still remember those early rehearsals really vividly, more than most things in my working life, just because you were so... There was this thing that I had learned to do, and part of it I had always known how to do since I was two. Part of it I picked up on work. It was this thing, it was my thing... And it was, in a sense, it was a very private thing, in a sense, quite a lonely thing. And suddenly, I'm in a room full of people who not, can not only do the thing, they could do it better than you, but not in a, a competitive way, or at least I thought not at the time, it turned out it was pretty competitive, but, but it was wonderful, it was so stimulating. And then, at the end of the week, the head of comedy came in and said, um, sorry, there's going to be industrial action at BBC all next week, and we can't tape it. And Lord knows when we'll be able to, because all the studios are booked up. Mm. And so I had to walk away from it. And even when we got a remount of the pilot, I couldn't do it, because I was working at the National Theatre at that time. What happened was, John Lloyd, the, the brilliant producer of it all, he rang me up and said, Tony, I've got some news from you. They've, uh, BBC have given us the series. And I said, well, that's great. I'm so pleased for you. And do tell Ryan I'm really pleased for him, too he said, yeah, well, please, for you as well. And I said, why? He said, well, we want you to be Baldrick. I, and I, I said, well, you made the pilot already, and I wasn't in it. He said, don't you remember, I told you, when you said you couldn't be in the pilot, that if we ever got a series, that we would want you to be Baldrick. Mm. And I thought, I, he had told me that, but I thought it was just the kind of old bollocks that producers always say to people when they're giving them <laughs> the, the shoe off. So I'd never taken it seriously. And for him, it was perfectly serious.
0: Hiring for your small
1: business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role.
3: Oh, I love that story. And and, and I'm I'm intrigued because they all seemed like very Oxbridge, as you mentioned, uh, who seemed to know each other, and they seemed like a set. Uh, The show was very class-based comedy, and and you were pretty much the only working class character. Do you think humour is a great leveller in bringing people together? I've talked to Stephen Fry about how
2: it works on the audience, which. Maybe it's not what your question meant, but I I just think it's quite interesting. Mm. And what he said was, the thing about what we all do is it's all a bit clever, clever, clever. And people listen to that and they are dazzled by it for a bit. But after a while, it's a bit, oh, God, blimey. It's a bit, you know, I'm just watching the television. I'm not studying for a degree in metallurgy or something. Um, But then as soon as Baldrick comes on, they're safe. Apart from one, apart from a lot of things, A, he listens a lot, and that's what you were saying earlier, uh, he's also very slow, he also pauses a lot, and what he says is very simple, and you can be with him, and in fact, you can, as an audience, as it were, almost climb inside him and negotiate the whole programme, as it were, through his face and his footprint, and I just thought that was a really interesting
3: observation. You, you've written a lot yourself, and obviously, the, the, as I mentioned in the introduction, the seminal Made Marion, um, which you wrote and uh, starred in and directed and did everything. Think, is it important and this is something for our listeners, to be able to get a good uh, atmosphere on set, or in a company, in order to get the best out of everyone?
2: The advantage of making television as distinct from making real life is that there is an editor who can take out all the cock-ups, all the embarrassments, all the little squabbles. So I would say it isn't absolutely necessary to have a good atmosphere. And I've been on sets where there is a terrible atmosphere, but you would never know it from the edit. But as far as, certainly I think as far as the floor is concerned, i.e. the camera people and the set designers and and all that, who are servicing those irritating, narcissistic little birds who are doing the performing, I, I think, yes, in that case, I think it's vital that you all have a good relationship with each other. Otherwise, how are you going to manage the twats who say the words?
3: Well, well, that's true. And, and uh, you do so many shows around the world. In fact, you've got a new uh, show coming out on Channel 4, Britain's Forgotten Wars. Um, mm. can, can you tell us, A, a little bit about the show and B, uh, how it was made and what the atmosphere was like on
2: set? i tell you why we made it. And it, I'm, I'm glad you asked me that question because this is a series I really care about. It's a series that I pitched, it was my idea. And when you're a performer, you actually, very seldom, does a show that you have pitched get made. By and large, it's, they're made because the television station wants it or because an independent company wants it. They are another kind of reasons or the people who are... Uh, schedulers, as they call the people who work out what kind of thing they want at a particular time. Um, But I was lucky enough, and I think one of the great things, one of the great thanks I've got for Baldrick, I think, but I was lucky in that respect, and I think one of the great gifts, the boons that I've received from Baldrick is that he's opened the office door for me, if you know what I mean, that I can go in and pitch things now and people will at least listen to them. And I wanted to do something about the wars that Britain had fought between the end of the Second World War and the beginning of the Falklands. And I've played this game with loads of people asking them what what they were. And people just don't know, an awful lot of them. They don't know if you say Malaya to most people or, or... Kenya, Kenya, to, to most people. I have no clue that we were ever there. Um, given that we were in uh, Malaya for around about 150 years now, British Army was was fairly active quite a lot of that time. It's really sad. The Malayans don't remember either. I, when I was out filming in Malaya, they said, to be quite honest, our history didn't, didn't start until we got rid of you guys and we had our own government. That was when history started and that's where, what we're taught. So there's all that labour, all that British taxpayers' money, all that sacrifice of life for all those years. And then a few years later, everyone's gone into to permanent amnesia. And, and I wanted to do that because I was thinking about the Gulf War, the Iraq War, um, particularly Afghanistan. And of course, this was before we actually left. And I was thinking, we fought the Afghan people twice before in the 19th century, and it ended really badly both times. The Russians have fought them that it was a disaster. The Americans have fought them that it was a disaster. Didn't anybody in the Foreign Office or the Cabinet ever study any kind of history? And I thought to myself, I think it would be a real boon to people if I could just tell them about all those wars that our forces were engaged in, apart from anything else, the sacrifice our, our people made was huge. And uh, we talked to a lot of, uh, uh, particularly ex-army people, some of them are in their 90s now, because we, we went as far back as, as Suez and Korea. And almost all of them are pretty hacked off that nobody remembers what they did. And often, I think, we tend to think of Officers as complete goons, and I blame Blackadder for that, and <laughs> uh, and uh, the ordinary soldier is stupid. Actually, when you when you talk to these people, particularly about the fighting that they were engaged in, they have a kind of maturity and a kind of wisdom that puts the rest of us in the shade. And it goes back to what we were talking about, about, about the now and listening and working as a team. I think, you know, when you've been fighting, with people for a long time. You get, you really get to value that kind, that way of living, that way of working, that way of operating.
3: I'm, I'm interested, you said that, uh, you know, their maturity, their wisdom. Was there also um, a sense of humour that got them through?
2: Always, always, always. Uh, uh, one of the things about uh, humour, which we nearly touched on, but not quite, is about, De-escalating the situation, isn't it? I, I've, I've got another series. I've got two series on at the same time, which is mad. I haven't had anything on the telly for about five months, but um, I've got two on. I've st- also got another two series on the shelf, so you're going to see a lot of them fairly soon. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm making a. Uh, I've been making a series after series about the Thames, which has always fascinated me. Great series. shot on it. Shot on about the shot. A series about the Thames at night. So I'm going into uh, oil refineries. Uh, the docks, servicing of the ferries, uh, all the the big jobs, the managing of the water that people do through the night that we don't know anything about. It's it's like listening to a comedy show all the time. All the people around it's all. Hey, just pass me The whole night. And it's not because they're psychotic. It's not because they're unlike anybody else. It's that they can create an atmosphere where they can, invest, at best, enjoy what they do and at worst, bear what they do
3: yeah so would you agree with me that humor aids resilience especially in in very very stressful situations
2: oh enormously yeah yeah i think i think it's uh, it's probably the best tactic that we can ever use uh, other than getting the job right
3: <laughs> well yeah and it goes back to you've got to laugh haven't you because yeah. uh, it, it, it it's our only weapon especially when when there's mayhem going on around you well what do you think the world would be like without humor
2: i think it's one of those unponderable questions because i don't think the world i don't think our world or at least our perception of the world would exist because humor is as much part of who we are as uh, as breathing and walking and seeing and being in the joke, it, it's, it's the fizz in our lives. There was a, a, a fantastic presenter director who you'll remember, uh, who was also a comic, that uh, uh, lots of younger people won't, called Dr. Jonathan Miller.
3: Oh,
2: and he spent the first third of his life, as it were, living in humour. He moved away from it other than because there were things that interested him more but he was I found him very interesting to talk to about it he said he said humor is a fizz and it's a fizz which is it's like the bubbles of oxygen in 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 your body he said timing what's timing he said I don't know but my bet is it's something to do with the rhythms in our body why would we all get T- timing the same why would we all fall about or kind of go ole when somebody does a superb bit of timing unless it was something that was deeply shared within all of us
3: well I'm, I'm fascinated by what you say uh, um, about timing and everything you have a, a, a real artistry in your comedy timing do you think comedy can be learnt or is it purely instinctive
2: I think that's like saying, do you think dreaming can be learned? Um, And uh, Jung would have have probably have said, well, actually, in a way, yes, we have all got that capability and we all do it unconsciously. And what he said was, try the exercise of as soon as you wake up, writing down your dream. And it doesn't matter if you can't quite remember it and you put in something and you're not sure whether you're making it up right now or as part of the dream, because that is part of it anyway. He said, after a while, when you write your dreams down, your dreams get more vivid, they get more clear, you can understand them more. So I don't think it's a question of can I learn to be funny? But I think it's that you can learn strategies to be more funny.
3: Yes, I, I think that's but I do you <laughs> My analogy is always, um, I think I can learn to be a better footballer, but I, I think some people are born with, with great skills for, you know, a David Beckham or something whereby their hand or their foot-eye coordination is at a level superior to mine to start with. So I can get a lot better and I can perhaps be Gary Neville, um but to get to the heights that you have reached i think takes some kind of inherent um comedy timing uh, understanding intrinsic understanding so you know
2: uh, my my bet I, I don't know if this is true but this is this is what i feel i just I kind of offer it up to you is that when we say some people can be better than other people. By and large, it's because they have physical attributes which will which will give them a superior skill. It may be that they have better mental attributes, but we don't know enough about the mind to know whether or not we all have an infinite number of Well, we know we have an infinite number of possibilities. We don't know whether we can access them or not. Or maybe it's the opposite. Maybe as as um, Uh, A great thinker's name totally escapes me. As Aldous Huxley said, maybe actually the skill is learning how to shut off so much so we're not getting too much information at a time and we can just concentrate on the one thing. Maybe that's one of the things that makes us great. The idea that it's genetic seems to me at best unproven, but I certainly know that my granddad was, was, he, you know, I'm a member of a Cockney family, and he was very ba doo ba doo ba 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 My dad was very ba doo ba ba I am. When my son is on the phone, people often confuse him with me. I suspect because of his rhythms, his attitudes towards the world, that kind of thing. He is totally different from me. He's a six footer. He's blonde. You know, he looks very much as though he comes from the other side of the family. But either there was. Part of a of a comedy sperm, <laughs> when his mum from me, um, or I think more likely that uh, it's just that environment that
3: uh, that he's been part of. So we're doing the nature versus nurture argument here, thing, and and I. Oh, I you noticed. I... No, well, yeah. And, uh, oh, this has gone very highbrow, Tony. We've had Jung, we've had Nature Versus (laughs) Nurture. It's marvellous. All comedians who I've grown up with and know, they kind of, they heard the funny quite early on. And when I was talking to you about being young, one of the first things you said to me was that that, uh, I was keen to do a joke. Now, that may be the reward of getting the laugh getting the love whatever that is but you heard the joke and you could do it there are some people who don't hear the joke first of all know where the funny is
2: it's interesting because I was listening to you then and I heard you say you heard the joke and I, I took that in checked it around myself and I thought now I see the joke and oh. I think that's I think that's what I do, and I don't. Quite, I don't quite know what it means. Although immediately you said it, my dad got two service medals, which he, which like most service when he got a couple of years after the war, and I said, "Oh, what are they for?" And he said, um, "Well, one of them was because the nathy made really horrible sausages, and no one would eat them, which would have been a terrible waste of money." And I was the. Uh, I was the only person who was brave enough to eat the disgusting sausages and I, you know I, I, when I tell you that Jonah i 'm still got that same movie running that I had when he told it to me.
3: Well, that's very interesting from a psychological perspective because uh, we all lead with certain things. Some people are visual, which uh, some people auditory. Now, we all have them all, but your your probably sequence probably goes uh, visual, auditory, then kinesthetic, and so you see the joke being funny. Whereas I've always heard it, I've always heard the rhythm of it and everything. But I love the fact that you, you actually see it and you can, uh, can visualise the way it's going. That's brilliant. Um, if I asked you to write a business case, and I know you are not somebody who writes a business case, but we have to convince businesses yeah. that humour is important. What would you include in the business case?
2: Certainly pacification. I think it's very easy in any work situation for the tension to rise. Before we started to do this, do you remember I was really struggling before we turned this tape on I was really struggling and I got slightly touchy with your engineer because he was asking me to do things that I'd, I'd already tried and immediately and as soon as I'd done it I thought oh my God I you were a complete prat to me. Um, but immediately you came in and you went how did you do that? and I knew what you were doing but it it, it, it worked anyway and, and I, I do think a lot of us have the tendency particularly those of us for whom work matters, to get wound up very easily. And we actually know that the more we get wound up, the less well we function. Well, we know it afterwards, but we don't know it at the time. And humour is just wonderful for that, for, for pricking those little pomposities and anxieties and neuroses. So I would certainly say that's important. I would say but for book bonding, it's very important as well. One of the reasons that cockneys have always been perceived as having a, a cockney wit, a very rhythmical cockney wit, is because it's such a big river that there was more industry and more working class activity going on around London than anywhere else And just to get through all that stuff. You had to do a bit of the hey, but I can't bring it down there all the time. It was just... It was, part of the function, I think, and I think any boss who doesn't get that doesn't really understand why people talk in the way that they, they do.
3: I, I love that, pacification and bonding. I think that is so smart and uh, any uh, financial directors out there would do well to listen to that as well as CEOs. Um, we've reached a part of the show, Tony, which we like to call Quick Fire Questions.
2: Quick-fire
3: questions! Who's the funniest business person that you've met?
2: Well, the funniest in the sense that he does comedy best is John Lloyd, who was the producer of Black Adder and Spitting Image and QI. But he is also one of the most serious people that I've ever met. He's also one of the most utopian people um, and one of the most polite people.
3: What book makes you laugh?
2: When I was about seven, there was a book called um, Half Magic by a man called Edward Eager. And it was about these kids who picked up this old coin. And if ever they wished for something, they got half of it, which is a great situation comedy moment. I didn't learn until years later that originally he had been an actor but it's about these kids having these adventures and I thought it was absolutely
3: wonderful. Half magic, fantastic. What film makes you laugh? Films by and large
2: don't make me laugh. I used to love Buster Keaton. I found him funnier than Chaplin. Chaplin I always found achingly sad, and I didn't know why, and now I know why, it was because he, he, there was so much of him that was achingly sad. Buster Keaton I, I always used to find very funny. Uh, Laurel and Hardy I used to find very funny. Or oh, I, I don't really like American comedy by and large. It's too shouty for me. Mm. Uh, I, I, you know, Old Ghostbusters I loved. I guess it didn't seem so shouty, maybe it was. But uh, no, uh, telly is my home for calling.
3: No, great. Um, We're going to take a shift to the other side to look at the other way is what is not funny, Tony?
2: Nothing, it's like what is not interesting, nothing. There are boring ways of talking about things and my job is often to find out what's interesting. There are deeply unfunny things about everything, but there are also funny things. So I don't think I don't think there's anything that's in inverted commas out of bounds. Uh, there's there's there's, there's, sens- there's sensibility, there's understanding, there's all those things. would be a common thread through throughout what we've been talking about. But I don't think I don't think anything's not funny.
3: So is it all about your intention? When you're uh, you're saying it, if your intention is to 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 punch down, does that make it less funny? As it your intention is to hurt or wound or bully, is that is there anything that you particularly don't go to because it makes you feel uncomfortable?
2: No, I'm always seduced by the idea of going into the unmentionable for for comedy. I, I love that. The person I find most interesting about that is Frankie Boyle, uh, yeah. who. Who I th- in many ways I think he's the Lenny Bruce of of of, of our times. Uh, in that he is, he's clearly I've never met him. But he, he seems to be clearly a very passionate man, a man who tries to have an enormous amount of integrity, and a man who's got this thing called humour that he can use to negotiate and discuss. These things, and it's, he feels it, it's, it's like he's a knight in armor. He's honour bound to take risks all the time, and sometimes they're awful, and sometimes they they offend people deeply. But and and I can see in his eyes when he's been talking about about it. there's this brash guy will say anything. Who's deeply hurt by the fact that uh, that that people have been upset by. Things he said. I, I don't like it when he slants off other comedians. I think you, I think you ought to respect people who work in the same industries. Right? you I, to me, that is a given. Just because it's such hard work, just because all of us put in the hours and the risks and the danger, even if we don't do comedy like the stuff that you like, it's still, you know, we're still in the same army, as it were. But I, do, I, I do have an enormous amount of respect for him, even when I get really cross with him.
3: No, I, I, I completely agree. I think Frankie's a, a one-off and, and, and so, so intelligent. But isn't the thing about comedy is that you don't know if you've crossed the line until you go over it. And so he, he, he's constantly having to push that line because we, you really don't know where it is. I think that's not quite the, the right metaphor. I think it's more you know when
2: you know when you're in the danger zone, but you don't know that, that you've trodden on the mine until you have. It. <laughs> I've often I've, I've often said things which I've I, I've thought Ooh, oh you know should I really be saying this well, yes yes because it's so scary it makes me fizz if I've got this fizz then other people will share it with me um, and you know. On a good night, ninety percent of the time people will share it with you, but there's always going to be some people and sometimes when you do tread on that mic. and I don't think you can prejudge that because I think it's a it, that's a subjective thing on the part of the person who's receiving it.
3: What word makes you laugh, Tony? Smorgasbord. Is that, is that
2: right? um, I say right? I I like it because. The O has got a slice through it, and I always think of the knife that cuts up the things on the board. I never realised until this moment in time that I thought that. Um, I like it because it's so unlike anything that that I would have had at home when I was a little lad. And I like it because my wife hates the word. She goes, ah, I don't see that word. There are, there is one or two words, isn't there, that for most people that they want to go, ah, don't say that word. Lord knows why, but... Uh, no, that, that's my word. I, want, I just want that one word on my tombstone. Oh, no, I, I won't, because my wife won't come and visit me, but so, on the back.
3: Yeah, he had a board of a life.
2: Yes, he did. No, no, <laughs> he's, no, no. he's stunk of pickled herring.
3: <laughs> <laughs> what sound makes you laugh?
2: Well, the fart, of course. Has, has anybody that you've asked that question not said the fart?
3: Well, a couple of people, but the farts have come up quite a lot, to be honest with you, more See, even,
2: even that sentence is funny. <laughs> exactly. Just to say, sound is very, very important in comedy. Uh, going back to John Lloyd, Lloyd again, he was very scrupulous about the sounds that everything made. And particularly, people think that Rowan was constantly beating me up in that series. If you look at it closely, he's such a pussycat round. He was always at least that much away from me because he was frightened of hurting me. He wasn't like John Cleese, he used to batter (laughs) uh, uh, Andrew Sachs. Uh, But what John did was he just got exactly the right noise for each hit that made it seem like it was agony and, uh, and ch- extraneous chicken noises, those kinds of things. They're, they're wonderful. They're, they're always, I think, part of the television comedy vocabulary.
3: Yeah, comedy gold. A, a yeah. funny sound can take you to new places. Would you rather be considered clever or funny? Well, you've got to say funny, haven't you? Anyone
2: who thinks they would rather be clever is a tosser. i'm with you all the
3: way tony (laughs) nobody wants to be a tosser be funny (laughs) and finally tony desert island gags you can only take one joke with you to a desert island what is it
2: to have only one joke constantly repeated for the rest of my life would be an absolute torture for me. It would stop being funny around about the 14th time, if it was a really good joke. By the 50th, it would be worse than being in a prisoner of war camp. So I will choose, Sue, uh, a comfy (laughs) mattress and one of those pillows that, you know, you can rest your head in really nicely. Thank you.
3: So you can come up with your own jokes in the comfort of your own bed.
2: Different one every time and not just jokes, Led.
3: <laughs> Tony Robinson, thank you so much for A, not standing on any minds during this chat and B, for being absolutely warm, witty and hilarious. Thank you. Lovely talking to you. Bye. The Humorology podcast was hosted by Paul Barros and produced by Simon Banks. Music by Steve Hayworth, creative direction by Les Hughes and additional research by Helen Sykes. Please remember to subscribe, like and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. This has been a Big Sky production.